0: Um, My name is Josh Miller. I'm the lead pastor here at Center Church, and if you're a guest with us this morning We're really really excited that you're here and I would love to meet you uh, After the service and just get to say hey and get to know you a little bit uh, better So over the summer we've been working uh, chapter by chapter through the book of Ephesians And today brings us up to Ephesians chapter 5 starting in verse 22 So if you have a Bible you can open it up or turn it on to Ephesians chapter 5 starting in verse 22 And the passage we're going to look at today is the most famous passage in the Bible about marriage. It is the most famous passage in the Bible about marriage. So if you pick up a Christian book on marriage, it is inevitably going to deal with Ephesians chapter 5. If you've ever been through premarital counseling or postmarital counseling with uh, a Christian counselor, they're going to talk to you about Ephesians chapter 5. And I think that this passage is going to be really relevant for you regardless of where you're coming from this morning. Uh, because if you are married, this passage is going to be really helpful for you to evaluate your marriage and to also see what God's kind of desire and design is for your marriage. So it will help you strengthen the marriage that you're in. Uh, if you're here and one day you hope to be married, this will help you understand what you should be looking for and uh, what a marriage uh, under Christ and in Christ looks like. Um, but even if neither of those things are true of you, I think this is going to be a really helpful morning because it's going to lay out God's design for marriage. And one of the things that you'll start to pick up on is that God's design for marriage is pretty different than how I think most of us or most people in our culture think about marriage. And so we get to go to God's word and we get to listen and hear what God has to say about marriage and compare and contrast that to maybe what you think currently about marriage or what maybe our culture at large thinks about marriage. And I will confess to you that there is nothing more convicting than to write a whole sermon about marriage being married, okay? Like, I feel like it took me a long time to write my transcript this week because I'd write for 10 minutes and be like, oh. once I like, walk upstairs, mayor, I'm really sorry. Like, you know, like <laughs> 16 different things. So um, let me just say that, that none of us have arrived in marriage. If you're married, uh, you fall into the category of have not arrived. And let me also say that there, there are probably some of us here this morning that marriage is a really painful topic. Maybe you are separated or divorced, and so you, you look at marriage as something that you tried and that didn't work. Maybe it was no fault of your own. Uh, maybe it was just that your, your spouse left you or something happened that and led to the, to, for the marriage to dissolve. Um, others of you have seen really, really bad examples of marriage, maybe growing up or in some of your friends. And so this can be sort of painful. So what I want to encourage you with today is that in any, in any instance in our life where the ideal is not present, right, where what God has for us is not uh, is not happening in your life. There's grace. There's grace. God says, "Hey, even if you're not currently in the kind of marriage that I, I hope for you one day, if you're in Christ, you will be united to Him in a perfect marriage where there will be no betrayal, there will be no uh, sadness or tears." And so, if that's you here this morning, I, I hear, I hear you, I see you, and I, I don't want to be sensitive to that. Okay. Um, for us to understand God's design for marriage, we need to understand a concept, a character trait that is a little bit um, a little bit controversial in our culture. It leaves a bad taste in our mouth. And that character trait is submission, is submission, okay? So submission is core to the Christian idea of marriage. If you, you'll look at verse 21 with me, just before the passage I gave you, um, Paul basically closes his previous section and starts this new section on marriage with that verse. So verse 21 is sort of the hinge statement. And he says this, um, going all the way back to verse 18, he says, be filled with the spirit, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So far in the book of Ephesians, in the first three chapters, Paul has laid out, hey, this is what your new identity is if you are in Christ. If you are a Christian, you have a new identity. And then starting in chapter four, Paul pivots and starts to say, since you have a new identity, you should walk or you should live in a different way. So you could say that chapters 1 through 3 of of Ephesians are a demonstration of the gospel or a declaration of the gospel, and chapters 4 through 6 are a demonstration of the gospel, okay? So identity is a really big deal. So Paul isn't just giving us these commands in a vacuum, but he's saying, hey, since this radical change has occurred in you, you have been brought from death to life, your sins have been cleansed, you've been made a child of God, how should that impact your marriage? That is is at its core what Paul is saying in in these verses. How should your identity as a Christian change how you treat your spouse? How should a Christian marriage over here, under the power of the Holy Spirit, redeemed through the blood of Christ, made a child of God, how should this be different from a marriage of two people who don't know any of those things, who aren't children of God? That is what Paul is going to get at today, and it has everything to do with submission. Paul's basic answer to the question of how should a Christian marriage be different is this. Okay, you ready? You, both wives and husbands, should submit to one another in marriage out of reverence for Christ. Wives and husbands both should submit to one another in marriage out of reverence for Christ. And wives and husbands do that in different ways. Okay? They're both submitting to one another, but they're doing it in different ways. And I want to point out before we get started that submission has nothing to do with value or inferiority, okay? Think about this. If you're a teacher or a professor, your students submit to you in the classroom, right? That doesn't make you more valuable than them. That doesn't make you superior to them. That's just the role that they play in that relationship. On the flip side, at work, you submit to your boss. That doesn't make her superior to you. It doesn't make her better than you. It's just simply the role that you're playing. If you really want to drive this home, consider Jesus, Okay, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He spoke and he brought universes into existence. And yet, when he lived on earth, he was the perfect picture of submission to his Father. Listen to John chapter five, verse 19. Jesus said this, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'the Son, Jesus, can do nothing of his own accord, "'but only what he sees the Father doing. "'For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise.'" Jesus was a perfect picture of submission. So if Jesus learned to submit, it can't mean that submission means inferiority. It must mean something else. Now, I know that what the Bible teaches about marriage uh, differs fairly, uh, fairly markedly from what our culture says about marriage. And it may be that you find the idea of submission and kind of differences in role between the husband and the wife really offensive, or maybe it really turns you off. Um, and I get that my encouragement would be to to hear out what God has to say and then to press in a little bit to community. Because here's what I've found. Oftentimes, when people are turned off by the teaching of Christian marriage, they're actually really drawn to the practice of Christian marriage. Does that make sense? So the the teaching grinds us a little bit and it kind of rubs us the wrong way. But then when you actually start to interact with some couples that are really practicing Christian marriage, you think, well, that's not archaic and disgusting. That's actually beautiful and wonderful. And they seem to be, that, that couple seems to be full of joy, the kind of joy that I really want in my marriage one day or the kind of joy that maybe you've been missing in the marriage that you're in. Okay, so let me, just, let me invite you to go through this with us, hear what God has to say, because I think it is gonna be for your good and ultimately for your joy. All right, so what does it look like for a couple to conduct their marriages in their new identity as people that are in Christ? It means submission in a couple different ways. We're gonna learn three things. Number one, how a husband submits to his wife, number two, how a wife submits to her husband, and number three, where we get the strength to actually do that, where we get the strength to actually do that, okay? Number one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do these verses out of order, and you're going to see why, because you have to understand the husband's role to really understand what the wife is being called to do, okay? So, we're going to start in verse 25, go through the husband's role, and then come back to verse 22. Some of you type A people, your head just exploded, you know, you're like, oh, ah. okay, number one, a husband submits to his wife by leading her like Christ leads the church, A husband submits to his wife by leading her like Christ leads the church. This is from verses 25 through 31. It says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but instead nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, so I told you this is the most famous passage in the Bible on marriage, and that's true. But before Paul wrote this, Genesis 2.24 was the most famous passage uh, on marriage in the Bible, okay? So if you were a Jewish rabbi and you wanted to do a whole series on relationships, you preached on Genesis 2.24, okay? That's how that worked. And what you're gonna find in this passage is that Paul doesn't really teach anything new about Christian marriage He just takes what is already implicit in Genesis 2 and makes it explicit in Ephesians 5. Does that make sense? He's not teaching new things. He's just taking what has always been true about marriage since the very first marriage that God created, and he's using the gospel to sort of bring it to life and make it pop. All right? And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see that Paul tells us that the, the husband is to submit to his wife by leading her like Christ leads the church in four specific ways. All right? Here's letter A. The husband leads in sacrifice. The husband leads in sacrifice. Verse 25, very clear. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ's love was characterized by sacrifice, right? He sought out your good and my good by giving up his own good. He died so that we could live. This is a clear call For husbands to practice sacrificial love, to put your wife's needs and preferences above your own, to leave behind a self oriented lifestyle, and to take on the noble mantle of servant leadership. This principle is most clearly and lucidly illustrated in the gospel, right? In Jesus leaving his position of privilege and coming to live a life of humility and of suffering so that we might be elevated out of our sin. But we also see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Paul quoted it in verse 31. It says this. God said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Who was to leave behind their previous way of life and their previous family structures and everything they knew? Was it the wife? No, it was the husband. The husband was called to leave behind what he knew. And if you understand traditional culture, this is a major deal. To leave behind your family meant to leave behind your identity in the community, it meant to leave behind your financial standing, your security and your safety. To leave that comfort behind and instead to go to the wife so that she didn't have to. The husband has always been led, has always been called to lay down his life, to lead through sacrifice. Right? It wasn't just Ephesians 5. It was all the way back in Genesis 2 when God first established marriage. So what does that look like for a guy to do this? Well, it means that you're not simply like willing to die for her in some big, profound, noble moment, right? But you're willing to die every day for her. That You're willing to die to your preferences and your comforts and what you would like so that she can have what she would like. It means practically cleaning the bathrooms, and changing diapers and watching rom-coms, all right? Like, it means doing things that your wife maybe wants to do that you don't want to do. It means when she wants to go to this restaurant, you want to go to that restaurant, you go to the restaurant she wants to go to. It means when you want to go out and buy a new pair of running shoes and she wants to get her hair cut, you tell her to go get her hair cut. Not that that happened yesterday in my house. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, man, that's a really specific application, Josh. (laughs) Guys, here's the bottom line. If you are, if I am serving my wife, our wives, like Christ served the church, then 90% of the time that you disagree, you will end up doing what she wants. Because hear me, most decisions in marriage are not spiritual leadership decisions. They're simply preferences. You are called as the husband to submit to your wife by leading her sacrificially, by putting her preferences before your own. That's letter A. Here's letter B. The man is called to submit to his wife by leading spiritually, leading spiritually. Look at verse 26, it goes on to say this, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies." So these verses talk about Jesus' ultimate purpose for his church. So let me ask you this question. Why did Jesus come into your life? Or why does Jesus want to come into your life? I mean, for a lot of reasons, but one of the primary reasons is to change you, is to make you more holy, is to help you become what you were created to be. And he does that by washing us with the water of the word. He does that by applying the scriptures to our lives and patiently walking with us and leading us through his spirit. Paul says, you see this phrase, in the same way, so analogous to what Christ does for the church, husbands, you are called to in the same way do that for your wife, to lead the way spiritually, right? To help your wife become more like Christ. And again, we see this implicitly in Genesis chapter 2. Adam had a relationship with God, a deep abiding relationship with God before God brought Eve to him. Adam walked with God every day in the garden. Adam had received God's commands in his word and he obeyed them. In fact, what's really interesting, if you look at Genesis 2, do you know that Eve never received the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? She never gets that command. God gives that command to Adam before Eve is even created. And the implicit idea is that Adam was to turn around and explain that to Eve. Okay, so this isn't a new idea. This is an idea that has been there ever since Genesis 2. So, what does that mean for husbands? So if you're here, if you're married or you're a guy and you'd like to one day be married, what does that mean? Guys, it means you should be the primary mouthpiece declaring to your wife God's feelings about her. You should be the primary mouthpiece declaring to your wife God's feelings about her. She is valued. She is cherished. She is precious in God's sight and she doesn't have to be anxious because he is the Lord of all and he is in control. You should be repeating to her the promises of God. You should be helping your wife get up in the morning to spend time with God. You should set the coffee before so that in the morning she has something to help her wake up. You should be asking her, hey, what have you been reading in your time with God? What has God been teaching you? Here's a great one. You should be pointing out ways that you see your wife growing spiritually. You should say, honey, I've just seen you become so much more patient. I've seen you really press in in that relationship. I've seen you be really faithful to share the gospel with our neighbors. I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited about what God is doing in your life. right? You are called to lead your wife spiritually. Here's a convicting question. Husbands, are you wind in your wife's spiritual sails or are you an anchor? Are you wind in your wife's spiritual sails helping her go further and faster or are you an anchor that is holding her back? Is she dragging you to church? Is she making you join a community group? Or are you leading out and saying, honey, I know it's been a long weekend. I know we've been out of town, but let's get up. Let's go. I'll, I'll, we'll stop on the way. I'll get you a Starbucks drink. Right? Are you wind in the sails or are you an anchor holding her back? Right? And if you have kids, if, if you're married and you have kids, this applies to your whole family. You are called to be the spiritual leader of your family. What a father does spiritually has, massive, has a massive impact on the family at large studies consistently show this. So one study found, this is, this is crazy, lock in for a second. If a child is the first person in a family to become a Christian, there is a 3.5% chance that the rest of the family will then become a Christian. 3.5%, it's pretty low. If a mother is the first one to become a Christian, there is a 17% chance that the rest of the family will follow and will become a Christian. A little bit better. If the husband-father becomes a Christian first there is a 93% chance that the rest of the family will follow. That blows my mind. And that was done by a Swiss, that was the Swiss government that did that study, okay? So it wasn't like me with some people, right? That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Doesn't that blow your mind? The reason for that is that God designed men to lead spiritually, and when they do, there are massive implications. Letter B, the guy leads spiritually. Letter C, He leads in providing. He leads in providing. Look at verse 28. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but instead nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So Paul's point is that Jesus nourishes his church, and husbands should do the same for wives. Okay? Well, what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of things that that means, but at least one of the things that it means is that, man, husbands are called to provide physically for their wives, they're called to provide the, the things that we need for life a place to live and food to eat and clothes to wear and all those things and i love the illustration that paul uses to drive home this point he basically references the body he says look he, everybody nourishes their own body right every guy in here this is what you do when you're hungry you eat right when you're tired you take a nap i will never have to get up here and preach a sermon about taking a nap right like i'll never have to be like and hey, you should. you're like no i just do that naturally why because guys are pretty good at just sort of taking care of their, of their needs and, and nourishing their own flesh. Well, here's Paul's point. Look, when you enter into Christian marriage, Genesis 2.24 tells us that the husband and wife become one flesh. Paul says, in the same way, husbands, that you nourish your own flesh, you should now nourish your wife. In the same way that Christ nourishes the church and provides for the needs of the church, husbands are called to provide for the needs of their wife. Now, what does this look like practically? Let me nuance this here because I think we get really confused, okay? There is an idea, sometimes this is what people do. They have a traditional view of how things should be, right? So like the house you grew up in, maybe your dad managed the checkbook or whatever. And so they, they take a lot of cultural details and then they implant that on the Bible. The Bible gives us no cultural details for how this works out. It really doesn't. It simply says, at the end of the day, the responsibility for providing for the wife and the family falls to the husband. It doesn't tell us exactly how that's going to work out. So, in some instances, that's going to look like the husband has a job, right? And, and that job provides for the needs of the family. Sometimes that's going to look like the husband and the wife both work because the wife wants to work. Because the wife has a great job, loves what she does, loves the relationships she forms in the community. That's great. The Bible's point is not, this is exactly how you do it, but at the end of the day, the responsibility falls to the husband. And here's how this works out practically. Let's say your family is currently living a lifestyle that demands that you have two incomes. You know what I'm talking about? Dual income family, right? Like the house you live in or the cars that you buy or the vacations that you take, whatever, all the eating out, I don't know, right? Demands that both of you work. But maybe the wife really doesn't like what she does. She doesn't really want to work. Right? It is the husband's responsibility to rein in the standard of living so that your wife can work if she wants to, but not because she has to. You understand the difference? The Bible isn't saying women shouldn't work. The Bible is saying that wives, if they don't want to work, shouldn't have to. Unfortunately, our culture gets this all messed up. This culture basically says, hey, uh, if if you are providing for the needs of your family, if you're a husband, like you're being, I don't know, like overbearing or something. Now, what scripture says is it's your responsibility, but if she wants to work, great. Right? If, if she doesn't want to work, Great as well, it just falls to the husband. Now, sometimes you might come together and say, hey, uh, it's, the husband's going to go back to school. Or maybe you're a wife and you have a great job, you love what you do, you make good money, and so your husband's going to stay home with kids for a season. There could be instances where that's fine. But at the end of the day, the responsibility is still the husband's. The husband does not get to sort of check out because his wife is a stud, okay? Like, this is, this is, not, a, this is not a, like, circumstantial thing. This is a theology thing. Christ provides for the church. And because the husband represents Christ Christ in the relationship, he is to provide for his wife. Okay, the basics there are a wife should work because she wants to, not because she has to. All right, he leads in providing. Letter D, he leads in romance. He leads in romance. Look at verse 29 again. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. Okay, we just talked about that. And cherishes it. Paul uses two different words because they mean two different things. Okay, nourish is all about like what we need to survive. Cherish is like, all right, how are we gonna flourish and really be cared for and delighted in? right? Husbands are called to cherish their wives by pursuing them romantically. And again, we find this in Genesis chapter 2. Do you know what the very first words ever, human words ever written in the Bible are? They're a love poem. They're a love poem. Adam literally sees Eve brought to him and like breaks out in song, right? He breaks out in this, in this poetic expression of love, and this was before anything bad, any sin came into the world. So here's what we know about Adam in Genesis chapter 2. He was the perfect man in every way. Physically, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally. So that's what, that, that's what this tells us. Biblical masculinity has a lot to do with romance. If you're saying like, oh, like, I'm like a manly man, I don't do that stuff. It's like, well, you're not very masculine then according to the Bible. What the Bible would say is that men were created to pursue their wives Romantically. Right, practically that means that us guys, if you're married or you're dating or whatever, it's our job to schedule date night, okay? It's our job to budget for date night. If we need a babysitter for date night, it's our job to find the babysitter. Let me tell you what does not make Meredith feel cherished. I've not asked her this, but I'm pretty sure this is true. If she scheduled the date night, she found the babysitter, and I just showed up at dinner. It's like, oh, you're welcome for my presence, Meredith, right? I'm sure you feel so cherished that I happen to bless you with some time of my, of my day. No, that, that's not intentional at all. But you know where she does feel cherished? If I take initiative and say, hey, why don't we go out on Friday night? There's this new restaurant downtown I think you'd really like. Hey, don't worry about the babysitter. I'm going to communicate with them. I've got it in the budget. Like, let's go and do that. I'm cherishing her by, by being intentional and by taking time to make plans Right? You have to initiate towards your wife. Call me old-fashioned, and this is just kind of, this is more me than anything else. This is why I think it's important still for guys to initiate to girls in dating relationships. Like, just to be, just to literally just be like, hey, I'd like to take you out on a date. Right? I know that's like, oh, we don't need to do that anymore, and that's fine. Like, if that's your thing, I'm not like, this isn't like the Bible. I just think that it, it, it's a good start if the person who you might one day marry, like, calls you and asks you to go out to eat. Right? Like, that, that bodes well for you in the future. If he asks you out to eat via, like, Facebook Messenger, that might not bode well for the future. It might. I don't know. Like, there's probably some of you that are so mad at me right now because you're like, your relationship started over Facebook Messenger. That's fine. Okay? Like, I'm not saying it's bad. But that's why I think that is important. Um, here's another thing, guys, just when you think about cherishing your wife. Here's the cash. This is a very convicting question. If your wife's identity was built solely on your compliments and encouragements to her, how healthy would she be emotionally? Woo. Okay, I'll read it again. If your wife's identity was built solely on your compliments and encouragements to her, how healthy would she be emotionally? Guys, look, walk in with me for a second if you're married, if you want to be married one day. Our culture is brutal to women. It is brutal. Every day on Instagram and on magazine covers, Women are told that they are not beautiful enough, but if they would just buy this skincare product or they would just start this new diet or do this new exercise plan, then they would be. Guys, we need to be the microphone, we need to be a megaphone in our our wives' lives saying that is not true. Saying you are beautiful and saying you are cherished and you don't have to be a size 2 and you don't have to look like a 19-year-old for that to be the case. We are to pursue our wives romantically, both taking her on dates and reminding her that she's not beautiful because of some skincare product, but she's beautiful because God created her, and she's our wife. A husband is called to submit to his wife by leading her like Christ leads the church. He leads in sacrifice, he leads spiritually, he leads in providing, and he leads in romance. That's how a husband submits to his wife, okay? So, now we come to the tricky question. How does a wife submit to her husband? Number two, how does a wife submit to her husband? Here's the answer. A wife submits to her husband by letting him be the leader. A wife submits to her husband by letting him be the leader. This is verses 22 and 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So just to make sure Paul drives his point home, he repeats it, right? He says, "Submit, wives, submit to your husbands, wives, submit to your husbands in everything. And what you have to understand is that, man, it's not just like, he didn't just make that up, like, hey, this seems like a good idea to me in first century, you know, Rome or whatever. He said this is because this is how marriage is designed. Now, I know the idea of submission raises a lot of questions, right? It raises a lot of questions. And you may have seen this horribly perverted. Right? You may have seen this used as a way to abuse or to, man, really push, push a woman down. Right? But the Bible man, is explicitly clear that women, men and women are created differently. The Bible is explicitly clear that men and women are created differently, that we have equal value and worth, but we play different roles. I think a, a, an easy way to put it is this. Men and women are equal, but we are not interchangeable. Men and women are equal, but we are not interchangeable. And marriage is one of the places that we see this fleshed out. I know this is a hot-button issue, okay? So let me start by unpacking what this doesn't mean, and then I'll go on to show you what I think it does mean, okay, from the Scriptures. Number one, it doesn't mean that the man dominates and always gets what he wants. I mean, we just talked for like 15 minutes about how in a godly marriage, really the woman should be getting what she wants about 90% of the time. The idea that a man gets what he wants and the woman's sort of like some servant in his household, that is a patriarchal idea. That is not a biblical idea, okay? that is not what it means. It also doesn't mean that a wife should ever allow herself to be in a situation of abuse or physical or emotional trauma, okay? If you look back at the passage, wives are called to submit as to the Lord and out of reverence of Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means by submitting, you honor Christ. That's what that means. If you're submitting and you're being abused, that is not honoring to Christ. He's not being honored in that, and so you should flee that situation. And if that's the case for you right now, we would, we would love to try to help you and be a part of that, okay? So it never means that. It also doesn't mean, hear me, that all women everywhere should submit to all men everywhere, whether that's in the workplace or in politics or whatever. Look at what the verse, look exactly what the verse says, okay? He says, wives, comma, submit to your what? Own husbands, right? As to the Lord. Paul is very specific. This isn't, it doesn't say all men, it doesn't say all husbands. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. So that doesn't, you know, if, if you're a woman in the workplace, I hope you have, Men that work for you, you know? Like, if you want to run for political office, that's awesome. Like, do your thing, right? Paul is talking about the institution of marriage. So, with all that said, what submission doesn't mean, what does this text show us that submission does mean? I'll give you two things. A, a wife recognizes the divine design of marriage, okay? A wife recognizes the divine design of marriage. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. You see, Christian marriage is first and foremost theological. Christian marriage is first and foremost theological. It is a picture of how Christ relates to his church. Christ loves his church, but Christ also leads his church. You following with me? He loves his church. He lays his life down for his church. He sacrifices for his church, but he also leads his church. We are called to faithfully follow Christ as our head, not to do our own thing and ask Christ to bless it. Okay, Christ loves his church. Christ lays his life down for his church, but Christ also leads his church. In the same way, a wife is called to submit to her husband's leadership. Not circumstantially because you think your husband's doing a good thing or he's smart or he's making the right decision, but because marriage is literally a theological demonstration. This is gonna be, this, this be a little pointed, okay? So give me grace. If you were a wife and you were consistently rejecting your husband's leadership, you are putting on display a false theological premise. You are telling people in your community that Christ doesn't really need to be followed, but only when you agree with him. That's direct, but that's basically Paul's argument. He's like, look, marriage is not just some random thing that you do if you want to. Marriage, from the very beginning, has been a theological declaration of things that are true about God and are true about Christ's relationship to his church. Wives, if you only follow your husband when you think he's making the right decision, that's not submission, that's agreement okay? Submission means sometimes when you don't think it's the right decision or you wouldn't do it that way, you follow because you're, fo- because you're married to him and because he's the head of the relationship and so you're trusting him. A husband is called to love his wife even if she's not responding in a great way. A wife is called to submit to her husband even if he's not leading in a great way. Now, practically speaking, let me, this is a little free advice here. Um, until you're married, if, if you're a woman, you're called to submit to two, to two kinds of men, okay? Jesus and he's pretty good, okay? And then the elders of your local church who should be very mature spiritual leaders, okay? If you get married, you are voluntarily, according to your own volition, submitting yourself to another person, okay? You don't have to. You don't have to get married. The Bible doesn't say marriage makes you better or worse. In fact, Paul says to be single, you actually have more freedom to do ministry. But when you get married, you are voluntarily submitting yourself to that man, and God now calls you to submit to his leadership, that means you should be really careful marrying somebody that's easy on the eyes but, but not a great spiritual leader. Because if you do, you're going to set yourself up for a long road. Okay, So just practically speaking, you don't have to get married. You don't have to submit to another man other than Christ and the elders of a local church. But if you do, it's kind of like that's, that's the deal. Okay, So just keep that in mind when you're thinking about who you want to get married to. Okay, The first way that a wife submits to her husband is just by recognizing the divine design of marriage. It's not circumstantial, everybody. It is just how God designed it. Here's letter B. A wife submits by giving her husband space to lead. A wife gives her husband space to lead. Verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In everything to their husbands. In order for a wife to submit to her husband in everything, she has to give her husband space to lead. Look, we have a lot of very smart, very strong women in this church, And that is a grace of God to us. But here's what I know about smart and strong people in general, not just women. Smart and strong people in general like to be in the driver's seat, right? They like to be in the driver's seat because you typically make pretty good decisions, right? Like, you're pretty smart. You've made this thing. You know, you've done pretty well so far. Here's the thing. If you're a woman and you fall into the category of smart and strong, and a lot of you do, you're going to have to actively practice self-control in your marriage, Here's why. If you are married to a man who is smart and strong and you don't practice self-control, there are going to be a lot of fireworks, all right? Like there just are because you're both going to want to be in the driver's seat, right? You're both smart. and You're both competent. And until you work this out, like I see some people laughing and smiling, until you work this out, there's just going to be a lot of fireworks, okay? Or you could marry somebody that's probably still smart and strong, but it's just a little more type B. And if you take the reins and start making every decision, you know what's going to happen? He 's going to slide into passivity right he's gonna go well she does everything and he's not going to be playing the role that he should play and you're not going to be playing the role that you should play you have to give your husband space to lead that means in little decisions like you, you just can't go through and plan your entire life and make every single decision and then get upset if your husband wants to change something like you've got to give him space to lead but it also has to do with big decisions, big spiritual direction of your family life decisions. And this can be a little bit harder because it'll influence your life. Um, You guys probably know this. Tim Keller is one of my favorite pastors, okay? I quote him like every single sermon. And his wife, Kathy, is brilliant. So she's authored some books with him. They both went to the same seminary, both have master's degrees in theology. And I love how she explains this this role in their marriage. She, She says this. She says, it means that in matters of disagreement over big spiritual life issues, I yield to Tim the deciding vote. I get a vote, he gets a vote, he gets the deciding vote. And then she tells this story that I think illustrates this perfectly. They were living in Philadelphia, he was teaching at a university, and they were thinking about moving to New York City to plant a church. This was back in 1989. And they took about a month to pray about this, and at the end of the month, Tim felt like yes, and Kathy felt like no. But to not make a decision, functionally, was to make a decision, right? Because, you know, and so they talked about it, they hashed it out, and finally Tim said, okay, fine, I'll concede to you, we won't go. And Kathy goes, oh, no, you don't. Right? She said, "She said you have to make this decision. Like, this is your job. You're not putting this on me. Right? And in time, they ended up deciding, yeah, we're going to move to New York City, and they planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and there's like 5,000 people at that church now. Right? So th- what that means is they were thoughtful, they were prayerful. It wasn't some stupid little thing like, what color should the car be? But it was a big, major life decision. And Kathy said, this is what it looks like to submit. And that's not easy, but it's a matter of faith and trust in the Lord. So, wives, you, you submit to your husband in both the little things, letting him lead, and in the big things, letting him lead. And when you do that, honestly, it will often call your husband up into leadership. Because anytime there's a vacuum in leadership, you've noticed this, somebody's got to fill it. So if you're currently filling it all because you're super strong and competent, which a lot of you are, There's just not a lot of space unless your husband wants to, like, knock you out of the way. He shouldn't do that, right? So give space and be like, well, I don't know if we're going on a vacation this summer. What do you think, you know? And then it's like, oh, he has to, like, engage and plan something, all right? So let me, there are so many practical implications if you just, like, think on this a little bit. But let me give you just two practical implications as I thought through this, okay? Number one, um, A, you should expect conflict in marriage. You should expect conflict in marriage. Practicing submission in marriage makes you holier, but it is not easy okay? Submission does not come naturally to any of us. Leading in the way I talked about doesn't come naturally to guys. Following in the way I talked about does not come naturally to women, right? But I've heard Christian marriage described as a gem tumbler. You know what a gem tumbler is? It's basically a tube that's on a uh, rotating socket that spins around really fast. And what you do is you take gems, precious stones that are rough, right? That have got sharp edges and that are hard to see, and you dump them in the tube together, and then they just spin and they just bang into each other over and over again. And after about 35 minutes, you get them out and they're like beautiful and the rough edges are gone and they're polished. Well, what happened? Well, they, they became more magnificent and more brilliant by, by running into each other, right? Well, that's kind of Christian marriage, okay? We all have rough edges and God gives us marriage as a way to make us more polished, to remove our rough edges and to make us more like Christ. But in order for that to happen, there has to be conflict. So if you have conflict with your spouse, you shouldn't think, I must have married the wrong person. You should think, apparently I married the right person and this is working, Okay? And also, this is a side note. I want to be careful here. If you never have any conflict in your marriage, there might be—I don't know what's going on there. You just might not be challenging each other. I remember—I remember talking to this couple once when Meredith and I were engaged, and he was like, "We've never fought." And I was like, "What's wrong with us?" You know? And it's like, maybe you are. Maybe there's a couple people out there that just you—you've gotten to the point where you never fight. But if there's never any conflict, you might not be smoothing each other out. Okay? That's letter A. Letter B, and I think this one is really important because the demographic of our church, there are a lot of wonderful young professionals and singles. Letter B. Your image of the right person should change. Your image of the right person should change. And you're like, easy for you to say, married guy. Okay. Here's what a lot of people think, but don't say out loud. And you don't have to nod your head, because this is what I thought when I was in your stage. Yeah, yeah, spiritual stuff is important, but I need to be really attracted to whoever I'm getting married to, right? Spiritual stuff, yeah, that's, this is important, but like they need to be at least an eight, right? It's just, and no one says it out loud, and it's not spiritual, and everybody will look at you funny if you do. But, like, we all, you all, you thought that. Right? Here, let me just, let me reason with you for a second, okay? Whatever you're attracted to in that person physically right now is going to get weaker. Okay? Just, what, I don't know what it is for you. Whatever it is, it's going downhill. All right? That's just reality. We all know that. Like, it's just age, 25 and 45, don't look the same. Okay? Like, there's a reason we call it dad body. Okay? Like, it just changes. So here's what I would, here's what I would, I would just, just reason with me a little bit. Why not prioritize things that are going to get stronger with time rather than things that are going to get weaker with time? You following with me? Here's what could get stronger with time, character. Right? Maybe you really have a fun time, like you love hanging out with this person, you laugh, you enjoy the same kind of things, like you, 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 just, you get along really well. Why not prioritize that, comprehensive attraction, not just physical attraction? Because over time, that is only going to get stronger and stronger, but the physical attraction is going to go like this. And here's what you'll find. This is amazing. And this this has probably happened to you. The more you're attracted to someone's character, the more you find yourself being attracted to them physically. All right? Has this ever happened to you? You meet a guy, you're like, oh, he's pretty easy on the eyes. And then you talk to him for like 20 minutes, and you're like, no way, right? (laughs) It's just just the way God has designed us, okay? So what I would say to you is prioritize comprehensive attraction. Because here's what we do. Let's imagine our friend Fred. None of you would ever do this, right? But Fred does this. Fred wants to be in a relationship. He's like, oh, God, why will not you bring me a spouse? He walks into a room with 10 singles. He immediately eliminates seven of them, right? For physical reasons. Like, oh, no, not that seven. Then he hopes that of the three remaining, one of them he will click with, and one of them will be attracted to him back. I know none of you would ever do that, right? But Fred does that. Well, of course, it's hard to find somebody if that's what you're doing. You're eliminating 70% of your options, Right? Why not do that in the reverse way and instead of saying, hey, who am I really deeply sexually attracted to in this very moment? And instead say, who could I see becoming my best friend and closest spiritual counselor? Who could I see becoming my best friend and my closest spiritual counselor? Because here's what any married person with a healthy marriage will tell you. It, it ain't all honeymoon, okay? The world tells us that marriage is mostly romance with a little bit of friendship spiced in. Anyone that's in an actually healthy marriage will tell you that is reversed. It's mostly friendship with a little bit of romance spiced in. And honestly, the more, the, the deeper you grow in your friendship, romance gets better. The book of Proverbs tells us that, that the praise of the praiseworthy is admirable. The more that you love this person and love their character and see that they're, you're just like, man, you're so godly and you're wise and you're strong and you're sacrificial and you're into me. Like, that, that's kind of a turn on, okay? So comprehensive attraction. So if I could just plead with you guys out there, man, change the image of who you're looking for, and then, real practically speaking, just get super engaged with God's church. Like, just get super engaged in the mission around here, and then just kind of look around and be like, who else is really engaged with God's mission? And that, I think that's the best way to find somebody. Okay? Sorry. I'm done giving dated advice, but I thought that was helpful. All right. So we, there's one really important question we haven't addressed yet, and that's what I want to finish with. This is all great, Josh. You've explained the passage and, you know, you've said some funny things about relationships. How do we actually do this? Right? Submission does not come easily to us. And if you've, if you've looked at marriages out there in society, very few of them actually look like what Paul is talking about. So where do we get to the power to die to ourself every single day? Well, Paul tells us in verses 30 through 31. So this is point number three, where we get the strength to submit. I'm sorry, verse 32 and 33. He says this. This mystery is profound. Speaking of Christian marriage. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The truth is that you'll never love your spouse well until you love God more than you love your spouse. Okay, I'll say that again. You'll never love your spouse well until you love God more than you love your spouse. Because consider these verses. Paul ends this section with a summary statement of the massively high bar that he has just set for Christian marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives like Jesus loved the church. None of us can do that in our own strength. We particularly can't do that when our spouses aren't responding to us in the way that we wish they would. You see, Christian marriage is, can only function in the way that um, a philanthropist functions. You know what a philanthropist is? philanthropist is someone who's really wealthy. They have a lot of money coming in over here from their business or investments or whatever. So they're able to give a lot of money to charity over here where they get nothing in return. Does that make sense? Their ability to give over here has everything to do with the income stream over here staying strong. Christian marriage takes a lot of output. Like if you're going to love your spouse well, it's going to require you give of yourself. You pour yourself out for them. And if you don't have a strong income stream over here, you're going to dry up. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to go through seasons where your spouse is distracted, where they're critical, where they go through a rough patch, where they get really sick, where they aren't giving you anything in return. You just feel like you're giving and you're giving and you're giving over here. So how do you keep doing that? How do you keep practicing this countercultural love and sacrifice? Well, only if you have a massive infusion of love over here. That's the only way. Where do you get that? Well, you get it from the spousal love of Christ. That's what Paul is saying in verse 32. He's saying, the mystery of Christ in the church, that you are the church, you are the bride of Christ, and he laid down his life for you, and he's patient with you, and he pursues you, and he loves you, and he cares for you. Think about it. God made us, and then we turned away from him. But he didn't say, hey, you aren't being what you're supposed to be, so I'm not going to be what I'm supposed to be. I'm done. No. Christ left heaven. You want to talk about sacrifice? Christ left the throne. He was born into weakness. He was born into a poor peasant family. He came to earth to change us, to get us, to save us. And on the cross, Christ looked down at his people being terrible spouses. He looked down at you and your sin and me and my sin being terrible spouses. And in the greatest act of spousal love that has ever been committed in history, he stayed. He didn't leave. He didn't give up on the marriage. He didn't walk out on you. He said, you are worth it to me even though you have nothing to give me. Even though I will always give to you and you will never be able to give back to me in the same way. I'm staying, I'm committed to this relationship and I'm committed to you. You see, the bottom line is that if you're a husband, you will never sacrifice for your wife in any way that compares to how Jesus sacrificed for you. And if you are a wife, you will never submit to your husband in any way that even comes close to comparing to how Jesus submitted himself for you. When you are satisfied in Christ, when you are secure in Christ, when you are sure you are chosen in Christ, when you are feeling significant in Christ then you will be able to love your spouse well. But if you don't feel this over here, if you don't know this over here, if this isn't real to you, if this hasn't changed your heart, you've got no shot over here. You'll just run out. You'll just run out of love. But see, in the spousal love of Christ, there is power for Christian marriage that we have access to. We can do this through the gospel. Should you bow your heads with me? I'm just going to give you a couple things to think about. Is your view of marriage shaped by God's Word? Is what we talked about today what your marriage looks like? If not, press again and again into the gospel of Christ. That's the power, that's the hope, that's the source. But if, you, if you're here and you don't know the love of Christ, if you don't trust his leadership of your life, if it's not real to you, if it's not existentially precious, if you aren't a Christian, I, I don't know what to tell you. I'm afraid that marriage is going to be really, really challenging. So rather than a bunch of action steps, I would just encourage you to receive the spousal love that Christ offers you in the gospel. Look, the message, the message of Christianity is this that you are separated from God by your sin, your willing rebellion. But in love, Christ traded places with you on the cross. He took your penalty and he offers you his perfect resume of righteousness as a gift that you receive through repentance and faith. It's just a gift that you receive through repentance and faith. Repentance means you turn control of your life over to him. Jesus, you're the husband. I'm following you. Faith means that you lean your hope in life and death fully onto Jesus and not yourself and not your good works. But if you've never done that, if you're not sure you've ever done that, I would encourage you, I plead with you to do that today. Come talk to me. Come talk to Justin, one of our prayer team after the service. We want to walk with you in it. Because if you start trying to work on marriage without having the ultimate marriage, in its right place. It's not going to work. But if you get the ultimate marriage in the right place, powerful, incredible things can happen in your relationships. Heavenly Father, you are so wonderful and good. You're holy and matchless and yet you're kind and gracious. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and our hearts? Would you help us to respond by faith to your preached word? I pray for those who have maybe been drowsy in their Christian life, that you would awaken them. For those that have been zealous, that you would continue to fuel them. For those who are far from you, that you would show them that you've been pursuing them every moment of their life and this is a moment that you're saying, I want you to come home. I want you to come back. I haven't given up on you. I haven't walked out on this relationship. To give us faith to respond to your word. We love you.